Well, three weeks ago, we launched a brand new series. And the series is called The Blameless Project. And we were really, really intentional about the name that we gave this series. The name of the series was not The Blame Never Project. I googled this morning, this morning, I googled Blame Never. And I got 200, less than a half a second, I got 217 million links to Blame Never. We would never have a series called Blame Never. Don't go to those links, you know, because sometimes, sometimes blame is necessary, isn't it? I remember uh, hearing about this comedian, and he was telling the true story of himself. And he was telling this true story of how when he was a young person, he grew up in a small town in Minnesota. And uh, he ended up robbing the gas station in his own small town. Not a smart thing to do. Because when the police came and uh, interviewed the person who had just been robbed and said, hey, can you give me a description of the person that just robbed you? He was able to say, yeah, it was Dave. <laughs> it was Dave. You know. Now imagine if the police officer came to that clerk who had just been robbed and said, hey, can you give me a description of the guy who just robbed you? And that guy had just been in a series at his church that said, blame never. He'd be like, well, I'd say something, but, you know, I'm in this blame never series. So, you know, I can't tell you anything because, you know, I don't want to cast blame, right? These wristbands that we've been handing out throughout the series, they don't say blame never. What do they say? They say the blame less project. The blame less project. Blame is instinctual. It's instinctual. It, it, it just comes. In fact, look up the definition of instinct. You could just put blame in there, right? It just, it just comes. It just comes. But if we don't stop to question that blame instinct and we just jump right to blame, things are almost always worse instead of better. Isn't that true? When you jump right to blame, instead of pausing to reflect, is this a blame situation? Or is blame as clear as I think it is? It almost always makes things worse instead of better. One of my biggest surprises so far as we've been doing this series called Blame Less is how little there is when it comes to a comprehensive approach to actually blaming less. You'd think there'd be a lot of stuff out there, right? Far more than blame never. And so this morning, I tried it again. I tried it again. I googled blame space less. And once again, like at the beginning of the series, Google hasn't learned yet. Because Google redirected me to one word, blameless. They said, you mean blameless, one word. I said, no, I don't. You know, I tried this before. And so I, I had to keep working it, working it, putting quotes, all this kind of stuff. And finally, I got a little drop down. It says, you mean blameless, but just in case the outside possibility is that you didn't, you, you might mean blame spaceless. So I clicked that. And what did it do? It redirected me again to blameless. You mean, it just is crazy. It's crazy. Blameless, one word is a thing on Google, but blame less is really hard to find. And early on in this, um, before months before we even started this series, I typed in because I wanted to get information, right? I wanted to do our research on blaming less. So I, there's got to be a website out there, blameless.org, right? Or blamelessproject.org. The domain was available. That's crazy to me that in all these years of the internet, there's not a blameless.org. So we picked it up. <laughs> we are now the proud owners of blameless.org and the blamelessproject.org. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to put on these wristbands, those that want to join us in this endeavor. We're going to try to use those to remind us to try blaming less. 
Let's see what happens and let's circle back after Easter. And let's talk about, because I, we're intentional again on this name. It's not just blameless, it's the blameless project. And we think there's more here than just a series. We think there's also some helpful things that we're going to be able to create and develop. So we'll see where that goes. But here's what we're going to do today. And the reason why we sang that song that I knew was coming but wasn't ready for, we're going to wrestle with this question today. What if we blamed God less? What if we blamed God less and became more faithful? That's what we're going to wrestle with today. What if we gave in, not didn't, give in to the temptation to jump right to blaming God. And instead, we were faithful to what God instructs us to do. If we don't do that, we can miss out. One of my new friends is a guy named Mauricio. Mauricio, don't, don't be surprised if you don't hear me using his name over more over the next couple of years. Mauricio planted Destino Covenant Church. Mauricio founded Destino Leadership Institute. Mauricio is the director of Latino Ministries for the conference that we're part of. And Mauricio should be dead. He should be dead. Mauricio grew up in Argentina where he was the son of a pastor. And around the age of 12, he got struck by a car and he fell into a coma. And they said, you're not going to, your son's not going to make it. And they took Mauricio and they wheeled him in the room in that Argentinian hospital where they put people to die. Well, Mauricio's dad had faith in a God who hears our prayers. Mauricio's dad had faith in a resurrected Jesus who, when he walked the earth, disrupted every funeral that he attended. Mauricio's father prayed and he responded with faithfulness. And he prayed and his family prayed and his church prayed. And Mauricio's eyes opened up. And hearing Mauricio describe what it was like to be a 12-year-old, who couldn't remember any of this happening and he wakes up in this room and he's hooked up to all these IVs and here's all these people that are in different stages of dead and dying. He freaked out. You know, he starts pulling out these things and jumps up and runs out of the room and the you know, staff is chasing him and all that. Well, when, when all that was done, <laughs> there was a very happy ending. A grace, a very grateful father was reunited with his son. And doesn't that seem to fit the script? that most of us think of when we think of the God of the Bible, right? Most of us, that, that script of you, you, something isn't as it should be and you pray and God makes things right. That fits the script that you'll find in here in so many places. But fast forward to 2019 and a child named Olive stopped breathing. Her mother had faith in a God who hears our prayers. And her mother had faith in a resurrected Jesus who, when he walked the earth, disrupted every funeral that he attended. And that story made national news. Olive's mother prayed, her family prayed, her church prayed, many of us prayed. Thousands and thousands of people prayed. And Olive's eyes never opened. And breath didn't return. Why? There's a place to write this in your notes. If you ever ask the question, where are you, God? Where are you, God? 2019 was a hard, 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 hard year for many of us. Many of us said goodbye to people we loved. Many people are still waiting for healing to come and for prodigals to come home and for walls to come down and mountains to move. 
If you find yourself asking the question, where are you, God? You are in the company of many faithful people who find themselves facing circumstances that don't make sense. They don't make sense. Best book I've ever found in addition to the Bible when it comes to this topic is this one. It's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. If some of you looked at this one before by Tim Keller, it is so good. So good. We have a copy out there in the lobby at the resource table if you want to page through it because it's, it's the best outside of the Bible. It's the best resource I've found. You can find that at that table along with the wristbands, other resources we've been recommending throughout the series. But the book that we're going to look at today and here is a book of the Bible and it's a book of Job. It's a book of Job. And this book has a script in it that fits the script that many of us have experienced. And it's way too familiar to many of us. Those times when something happens and that something is beyond our understanding and that something is not the result of sin or disobedience, that something isn't the result of a faith deficiency. And we find ourselves saying, where are you, God? Where are you? All right, well, let's do it. Here we go, book of Job. Chapter 1, verse 1. If you have your Bible with you, please open with me to it. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to go home with one free today. That Bible has all kinds of different... You're going to find all kinds of things in here, including this book. This book. Well, the book of Job is a unique book. Unlike many of the books of the Bible, you can't find historical anchor points in here. And one of the things that I saw as a common theme as I was looking at what different scholars said about Job is many of the scholars said that appears to have been intentional because the themes that are in here, they cut across generations, they cut across cultures, they cut across all these different things. And by not anchoring it in history, it puts it where more of us, I think, can relate to it and say this story is is in many ways, to a much lesser degree, my story. All right, well, what we're going to begin with here in our journey is uh, verses 1 through 3. Let's start there. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was what? What does it say? He was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons, three daughters, which some people consider a blessing. He he possessed 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys and had many servants, very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Whew, Wow. As the book opens, we're introduced to a blameless man named Job who is very, very wealthy. And those specific numbers that we gave you, if you go all the way to the end, whatever, 40 chapters, 41 chapters later, you're going to find those numbers are significant. They come into play later. All right, but right now, let's look at verses 4 and 5. 4 and 5 say this, His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings to the number of them all. For Job said, hey, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. All right, let's unpack this just a little bit. If Job were an Instagram influencer, we'd be thinking there is no possible way that this guy is that perfect. No way. He's just snapping the pictures he wants us to see, right? That's what we would say if we look at this. 
He is successful. He is respected. He is generous. He is loved. Job's family was so close-knit that all of the siblings would get together on a rotational basis and they would all show up and they would all have a meal together. Wow. All right, Job, he was also blameless. How blameless was he? After the kids would host that get-together in their house, Job said, maybe just on the off chance that that party got a little too crazy, I'm going to do a sacrifice for each and every one of them just in case they need to be covered for something that they did unintentionally that God didn't like. Which is every parent, we do that right all the time. No. Wow, how blameless was Job? If you go to the book of Ezekiel. You're going to find the prophet Ezekiel quoting God. When he quotes God, God ranks Job's righteousness right up there with Noah and Daniel, and he does it twice. Wow. So that's Job. That was verses one through five. Now comes verse six. Take a look at this. Now, just abrupt, scene change. Scene change. All of a sudden, now we're going from St. Job the Blameless to God's heavenly court. Take a look at this. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, what? Came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, if you have a study Bible, there's probably some little asterisk or footnote or something on the name Satan. That's because in the Hebrew texts, it's not a proper name. It's a Hebrew word with a with a, a whatever they call the the what is in front of it right so it's 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 um it's like the satan the satan the satan is a character it, it, the word means adversary and the satan is a character in the old testament that we see very very little about it doesn't describe this character, the Satan. He just comes in once in a while, like as a serpent and these different things. All right, let's continue. Verses 7 through 12. The Lord said to the Satan, from where have you come? The Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro throughout the earth, from waking up or walking uh, and up and down. And the Lord said to the Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright, upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? The Satan answered the Lord and said, well, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all he has. And he will what? He'll curse you to his face, to your face. And the Lord said to the Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. All right. The reader knows what just happened here. Does Job know what just happened here? There is no indication that Job ever knows any of this. Here's Job's experience. This is what happens next. From Job's perspective, I'm living this blameless life. I'm blessed by God. And all of a sudden, picking up with verse 13... Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. Job's reeling from that. And while he was yet speaking, there comes another and says, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was speaking... 
There came another who said the Chaldeans have formed three groups. They made a raid on the camels. They took them. They struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there was another that came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in your older brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people and they're dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And Job rose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and he seemed like a typo. And he worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now again, remember, he didn't have the perspective that the reader did, which by the way, footnote, the readers, at least my reading, I'm going, what just happened there anyway? Did the Lord just make an object lesson out of a person? Did God just allow the Satan to go and have people kill other people? What is even going on there? But Job doesn't even know that, that this is in play. All Job knows is that disaster has come from all sides. When you do a careful reading of this text and you start to pull in the context, you discover that the Sabaeans would have come from the south. The Chaldeans would have come from the north. The destructive wind would have blown from east to west. And then lightning would have come down from the heaven. In Job 9.18, Job laments, I don't even have time to catch my breath here, God. What is going on? Maybe some of you felt that before. It's one thing after another stacked on top of each other. The word says that Job mourned. But what did he do as he was mourning? He worshipped. Is it possible to do both? I've seen it. It's possible to do both. In the New Testament, the Paul said, Apostle Paul, he says we grieve. But as believers, we grieve, don't grieve like those who have no what? No hope. We grieve. We grieve. We grieve, though, like those who have hope. There's people who are out there pointing fingers saying, you, you can't both grieve and be a follower of Jesus. What? Where, where do you get that? So you don't get it from the Bible. That's not biblical faith. You can mourn and you can worship. You can grieve. You can grieve. We grieve. We just we are able to grieve though, like those who have hope, right? Well, Job, he he's wrecked. He's absolutely wrecked. Job laments. But Job remains faithful in that. He's able to praise God in this storm. Verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God. He didn't blame God with wrong. Well, the Satan isn't satisfied. He returns and was given permission to inflict Job himself with horrible sores that covered his body from head to toe. And in the ancient Near East, a skin disease was considered a curse. So now everyone that would look at Job would look at him and just see his body and they go, well, obviously you did something wrong. You are cursed. You are cursed. Things were so horrible that Job's wife said to Job, she said, just curse God and die. Curse God. What did the Satan want? 
to have happen. He wanted Job to curse God. How does Job respond? Let's jump ahead. Chapter 2, verse 10. Job says this. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. All right, Job is in a horrible state. He is suffering. He is bewildered. He is devastated. And then his friends arrive on the scene. Verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. What was the purpose of their visit? To show him sympathy and to comfort him. I cannot stress this enough. Find your people. And find your people before before tragedy comes. Find people that you are there for. That's how you find the people who will be there for you, right? Find them before. Okay, Job's friends get off to a really good start. Verse 13. And when they saw Job at a distance, they didn't even recognize him. And they raised their voices and they wept and they tore their clothes and, and their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven and they sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word for they saw that his suffering was very great. After all that Job had been through, he was barely recognizable. And how many of you know what that's like? To see the person who was just, their bodies were ravaged by disease and you can barely recognize them. Or the trauma that they've been through is so severe, you can barely recognize them. That was Job. Because Job's friends did what good friends do. They entered into the pain. They sat with him for seven days. They just sat, no words, because there were no words, right? They sat on the ground with him. They just were there for him. Seven days. Earlier I mentioned that child named Olive. And many of us know her mom. Her mom was in my youth group when I was a youth director. And when Olive's death and her mom's response made the national news, a number of people asked me, they said, Chris, what's your take? I said, here's my take. A mom just lost her daughter. This is not the time for a take. This is a time to grieve, right? Well, those of you who know the story of Job, you know what happened when people began to give their take, right? Did that make things better or worse? Oh, my goodness. As time went on, as is the case, when, when there is traumatic suffering, do not be surprised if you, can go, if you go from that point of, okay, I've got faith in this, as it goes on and on and on, you begin to go, you start to have questions and struggles. This is what happens with Job. You begin to see, he starts to, he starts to have these questions. Well, then Job's friends, they start blaming Job. This is on you. It's got to be. It's got to be on you. They couldn't get their minds around something this bad happening to someone who was that blameless. Their original intent was to comfort, right? And to bring sympathy. But the things began to unravel to the point when they opened their mouths so bad that Job called them, quote, miserable comforters who offered, quote, empty nothings. Have you ever had that, right? Where you got this miserable, what do you call them? Miserable comforters who give you empty nothings, right? Well, Job also, we see as the text unfolds, Job could not get his own mind around something this bad happening to someone as blameless as he. 
And Job began to question the way that God was handling all of this. And after 35 chapters of just letting them go, God answered. And this answer is not the answer that most of us are looking for. This is right out of Job, Job 38, 1 through 21. God answers. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And he said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I'll question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut out the sea, shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? And prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no farther. And there shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place and that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment from the wicked. Their light is withheld and uplifted arm. Their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of the deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the path to its home? And he says this, he says, you know, for you were born then And the number of your days is great. And so it begins. From chapter 38, where we just were, till almost the very end, God takes Job on a tour of his amazing creation. This incredibly complex universe. And then God, along the way, he asks Job these things. He says, can you bind or loosen the chains of the constellations? Job. And he says this, things like this. Were you there when the doe gives birth to the fawn? Do you know the God of the Bible counts the months, it says in Job? Counts the months until a fawn is born. Wow. Verse after verse, this continues. Then God asks the question, this question of Job in chapter 40, verse 2. He says, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Will you condemn me? that I may be, or that you may be in the right. Let me do that again. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Back when I was in high school, oh, I wanted to walk away from God. So I thought that was going to open up all kinds of new opportunities, right? And I thought that I had the notion of God in a checkmate over this problem of evil. Because in my 16-year-old brain, I thought, aha, if God is good and God is great, and if he sees something that isn't the way it should be, he should be motivated because he's good. He should be able, because he's great, to change things. Aha, take that God. You can't exist. With a show of hands, how many of you know that argument falls apart really quick? 
if I gave us even 10 minutes, I bet we could come up with more than a dozen reasons why that argument just doesn't hold up from a rational, philosophical standpoint. Trials and suffering do not present a philosophical, a philosophical challenge for faith. And there's a place to write this in your notes. The book of Job deconstructs a popular myth. The popular myth of this, that the problem of evil is a philosophical problem. I'll now say it as it's written. The book of Job deconstructs a popular myth. The problem of evil isn't a philosophical problem. Job 38 through 41 deconstructs the presumptuous assumption that we have enough perspective to understand how things should be. This morning, a little illustration. I got up and I went to make a cup of coffee. Very simple process. Got one of those Keurigs. You lift up the lever. You take out the old cup. You put the K-cup. You put the new K-cup in. You close the lever. And then it says, I'm ready. And you press the ready button and it makes the coffee, right? Well, this morning... I lifted up the lever, I took out the old K-cup, I shut the lever, went to get the new K-cup, and I come back, and the coffee machine is blinking, saying, ready, ready to go, just push me now, and you'll have fresh coffee. Sheen was wrong, right? I had the fresh coffee thing in my hand. I had perspective that the coffee maker didn't have, right? Because it's just a coffee maker. There were things I could see from my vantage point that the coffee maker couldn't. There were other things that needed to happen too, beyond the coffee maker's comprehension. As humans, we hate, we hate, we hate. Many of us, I'll speak for myself, as, as me, I hate, hate, hate often, hate, 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 that I have a limited vantage point and I forget it. I guess more than hate, I forget it. That'd be a better way of saying it. I forget that I have a very, 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 very limited vantage point. I remember hearing a pastor once say, if we could see as God sees, sees, we do as God does. The problem of evil, it's not a philosophical problem. Here's why evil is a problem. And there's a place to write this down. It's personal. It's not a philosophical problem. But it is intensely personal, isn't it? And that's not a shaming statement. That's a statement of, it's just truth. It hurts because it's personal. And we, we, we cry out and we say, God, I thought you said you loved me. Where are you? If you can see this and you can make it better, why aren't you? We can logically deconstruct the problem of evil. It is easy to do. But when we feel the pain and confusion, when things aren't as they will be, and that's important to remember, things will be, Right? There will be a will be in heaven. Well, it's natural then for our minds to ask, where are you, God? And the Satan, this is huge. The Satan wants to keep us stuck there on the where are you question. Why? Because where are you will lead to blame. If you stay stuck, if you stay stuck long enough, even Job, blameless Job, you stay stuck long enough on the where are you, God question, it will lead to blame. The Satan wants to keep you there. Instead of moving on to a better question, who are you, God? Who are you, God? Who are you? And then who are we? Right? How often to reflect on this question, who are you, God? Isn't that where God took Job when he took Job on that tour of the cosmos? These next bullets are going to come really fast. Here we go. We can become more faithful by 
practicing fidelity. And one of the ways you do that is considering creation. There's intentional redundancy in that first statement. Fidelity is a practice of faithfulness. One of the things that scripture invites the faithful to do is to consider creation. And what if, what if instead of jumping right to blame as we instinctually do, what if we backed up and we did what the Bible says to do? We said, let's consider creation. Consider creation. The psalmist wrote, the heavens declare the glory of God. And I've done my best to try to turn this into a regular discipline in my life. And I'll tell you guys, it is a game changer. It's a game changer. When I'm in over my head, which is every week, when I see things that don't seem to be in line with God's will, which is every week, when things happen that I don't understand, I try to get outside. And I look at the world that he made. And I remember he understands things I can't fathom. And he is able to do things I can't comprehend. To his credit, when God's creation reminded Job of his humanity, Job responded with humility. Job 42, 1 through 5, near the very end. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you will answer me. My ears have heard you. And now my eyes have seen you. Job's faith had been refined, it had been tested through this storm. And many of us can testify to that happening in our own lives. If we give in to the impulse to blame God for things that we don't understand, we miss an opportunity to become something more. Now, I found this is so important. We're not going to stop here because the Bible doesn't stop here. Looking to creation is helpful, but only to a certain extent. Looking to creation is helpful in that, if you're honestly looking at it, you come away going, wow, if this is truly a creation, there's a being that is beyond me. He is able to do things that I can't do. He understands things I can't. But that only takes you for, so far. It doesn't take you to the personal, does it? So there's something else that Scripture asks us to consider, and it asks us to consider a lot more than creation. I bet a lot of you have already filled this next blank in, haven't you? Consider what? The cross. If you want to know, is God beyond our understanding, look at creation. If you want to know, does he care about you? Look to the cross. Reflect on the cross. Consider the cross. Although he was blameless, bad things happened to Job. Anyone know anyone else who was blameless and had horrible things, horrible things come his way? He experienced far more pain and suffering than most of us can even comprehend. What if? Instead of jumping to blame, we did more of what God invites us to do. What if we were faithful and we reflected on the cross? What if we remembered that God the Father knows what it's like to watch his beloved and blameless son suffer and die? What if we remembered that God the Son knows what it's like to be blameless and to pray in his blamelessness, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And what if we remembered that the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, intercedes for us at a depth that we can't even understand with words that we couldn't even string together? 
when, not if, when your pain causes you to question whether or not God understands or God cares. There's creation and there's a cross. And there's also this invitation too. This invitation to become more like Christ. What if, what if, instead of rejecting or blaming God, can you imagine how different the world would be if we followed the example and teaching of Jesus? It would eliminate massive categories of pain and suffering if everyone followed the example and teaching of Jesus, wouldn't it? Human trafficking, gone. Gone. Abuse and neglect, gone. Lying, cheating, deception, gone. War and violence, gone. Poverty, starvation, injustice. If every person on this planet followed the example and teaching of Jesus, gone. The more that I hear and put into practice the things that Jesus modeled and taught, that is the definition of faithfulness, right? The more we do that, the more I realize he really is the way. He really is the truth. He really is the life. Amen. And there's this. And there's this. On the other side of Job's suffering, Job was restored. He was restored. We don't have time to do it here. Read it in your small church. Read it on your own. Read chapter 42. He was restored. And Job was given far more than the Satan ever took away. What was waiting for Jesus? On the other side of his suffering, a resurrection. What's waiting for all the faithful? On the other side of our suffering. There's a tiny detail. A tiny detail at the end of Job. And it's really easy to miss. At the very end of the narrative of Job, Job has seven more sons. He has three more daughters. And the author of Job, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gives us the daughters' names. He gives us the daughters' names. Job gave his daughters, on the other side of this horrible experience, Job gave his daughters' names that translate into things like, quote, soft-voiced turtle dove. This is my soft voice turtle dove, right? And he said it just like that. And another one was named Cinnamon Flower. My little Cinnamon Flower, right? Bitter men, bitter men do not name their daughters Turtle Dove and Cinnamon Flower, right? On the other side of all of this, Job was able to look back and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. He was able to look back with resurrected eyes. When you are able, whenever your time is, to look back at your life through resurrected eyes, you will see a God who was patient, a God who was kind. You're going to find a God whose love was more devoted than the perfect bridegroom to his bride. You will find and see a God who does see, a God who does care, a God who is at work, a God who will ultimately bring all things on earth as they are in heaven. Faithful he has been, faithful he will be. Can I get an amen to that?
At this time, I want to invite the worship band to come up. And as the worship band comes up, let me leave you with these final thoughts. We are not home yet. Jesus promised in this world, we will have trouble. Storms will come. Can I get an amen to that? They will come. Trying to build a shelter in the midst of a storm rarely works well. Here are three things we can and should do to prepare for the storms that are on their way. Number one, hear God's word and put it into practice. Jesus said doing that is like someone who built their house on a what? On a rock. Those who do not hear and put into practice. That's like building on sand. What happens when the storms come? Boom. Hear and put into practice. Number two, have good people in place. And again, again, the way to get good people in place is be the person that you want them to be for you. Right? Right? And this last one, here's why the worship band's up in place. Have your playlist ready to go. Because songs are powerful, aren't they? They are powerful. And we're going to close with a song that Olive's mom wrote and recorded along with some others from her church. Amen.